0: Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Revelation chapter 4, 2-8 through 8. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated on it there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a glass sea, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like an ox. And the third creature had a face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. God is holy. Both Isaiah and John in their visions get a glimpse Of what it is like in the throne room of God. And the cries they hear are, Holy, holy, holy. In English, we have a number of different ways of emphasizing things, right? You can put a a word in italics or in bold, or or you can underline it. You have an exclamation point there. Hebrew does a different thing to emphasize qualities, it repeats them. Thus, the threefold repetition of holy. They're putting for us, the, the authors, they're putting God's holiness in bold, in, in italics. They're, they're underlining it. This attribute of God, his, his holiness, defines all the others. God's love is holy love, God's wrath is holy wrath. God is is holy. Right? right? Here, you don't read anywhere else in Scripture that, that God is love, love, love. Or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. But we see over and over again, God is holy, holy, holy. But what does it mean to be holy? I think we can uh, think of holiness in, in kind of two definitions, if you will. Firstly, God's holiness refers to his other-than-ness, his set-apartness, his complete uniqueness. I'm making up words at this point. Uh, But the, the idea is that he is unique, he is distinct. He is categorically different from all of his creatures and all of creation. He stands in a class by himself. He is distinct. And then the secondary meaning, and this is what we usually think of when we think of holiness, and, and it's just as true, that it refers to God's power and his purity. His greatness and his goodness. He is all good. He is all powerful. And he alone is God. God is holy. And Leviticus revolves around this idea of holiness. In fact, the the motto of the book might be God saying to his people, be holy because I am holy. God's people are to reflect his goodness and his purity in the way that they live. They are to live as a distinct people, set apart from all the others, in devotion to the unique God who exists. And we've seen uh, this big question that hangs over Leviticus. We try to bring it up every week. How, How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Because as Israel proved right away when he saved them out of Egypt and brought them into relationship with himself, they indeed were a group of sinners. They disobeyed God. If God is holy and his goodness always demands justice, his goodness consumes evil, how can evil people live with him? Live with his his very uh, tabernacle, temple, palace at the center of their camp? And Leviticus answers the question. God in his grace and his kindness and in his mercy sets up this sacrificial system and gives to the people priests. He teaches the people about purity laws. And so by following all these rules and regulations, the people are able to have their sin atoned for and enjoy relationship with God. The holy God. And so to this point in Leviticus, we've seen the sacrificial system. We've been introduced to the priesthood. And last week, we we saw this first great worship service at the tent of meeting. And this week, we come to chapter 10. And we are reminded that this God of Israel is not to be trifled with. He's not to be approached casually or wantonly, but that he is holy. And should be treated as holy. That's our main idea this morning that God is holy and must be treated as holy. And our exhortation is treat God as holy. We are uh, going to work a little bit backwards through the text. We're, we're going to probably talk about the fallout first, and then we're going to give some time to the fireworks that happen at the front end of the chapter. But there, there are really three sentences or three things that I, I took away, and I hope that help you. First, that God's holy comfort meets us in suffering. Secondly, and this is the bulk of the chapter, God's holy character must be represented in his holy people, especially in his priest. And then lastly, that God's holy judgment is always right. You see God's holy, holy, holy there in that line. That was real smart, huh? Thrice holy, we're underlining it. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, None of us is in right relationship with you apart from faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We come confessing that that we are not perfect, that there is nothing in us worthy of your love, and yet you, in your kindness, have chose to love us, chosen to give us the gift of faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we we stand amazed at your benevolence. We stand amazed at your kindness to us. In response to your goodness and your greatness and your power and your majesty, we give to you the worship that you deserve this morning. Pray that you would find it acceptable We ask that you would help us to encounter you here this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what we're going to do, we're going to read through the whole account and then kind of double back through at various points. So you can turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan or censer, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, and I will display my glory before all the people. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here and carry your relatives away from the tent, from the front of the sanctuary, to a place outside the camp. So they came forward and carried them in their tunics outside the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, or else you will die. And the Lord will become angry with the whole community. However, your brothers, the whole house of Israel may weep over the burning of the Lord's anger, which had been ignited. You must not go outside the entrance to the tent of meeting, of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is on you, So they did as Moses said. The Lord spoke to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or beer when you enter the tent of meeting or else you will die. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean, and teach the Israelites all the statutes that the Lord has given them through Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Take the grain offering that is left over from the fire offerings to the Lord and eat it prepared without yeast beside the altar because it is especially holy. You must eat it in a holy place because it is your portion and your sons from the fire offerings to the Lord for this is what I was commanded. But you and your sons and your daughters may eat the breast of the presentation offering and of the thigh of the contribution in any ceremonially clean place because these portions have been assigned to you and your children from the Israelites' fellowship sacrifices. They are to bring the thigh of the contribution and the breast of the presentation offering together with the offerings of fat portions made by fire to present as a presentation offering before the Lord. It will belong permanently to you and your children, as the Lord commanded. Then Moses inquired carefully about the male goat of the sin offering, but it had already been burned up. He was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, Aaron's surviving sons, and asked, Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? For it is especially holy, and he has assigned it to you to take away the guilt of the community and to make atonement for them before the Lord. Since its blood was not brought inside the sanctuary, you should have eaten it in the sanctuary area as I commanded. But Aaron replied to Moses, See, today they presented their sin offering, their burnt offering, before the Lord. Since these things have happened to me, if I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been acceptable in the Lord's sight? When Moses heard this, it was acceptable to him. So verses 8 through 11, when the Lord speaks to Aaron, actually break apart this narrative for us and brings our attention to them as the very center and heartbeat of this particular passage. The the big idea here is that God's people must be holy, especially his priests, because God is holy and deserves to be treated as holy. And in fact, Nadab and Abihu, in rejection of God's commands, sought to worship him their own way and found themselves consumed by God's holy judgment. And yet it is here, in verse 8 of Leviticus 10, where we find God speaking to Aaron. Everywhere else in Scripture, God speaks to Aaron through the lips of Moses or when Moses is present. This is the only time that God talks directly to Aaron. And so the question is, is why now? And the answer is actually kind of simple. Two of Aaron's sons have just died. I tried to imagine what this would have been like this morning, and had my heart wrenched to lose two children. Just like that. So I imagine Aaron is suffering. Full of sorrow at the loss of his children, Nadab and Abihu. Furthermore, I feel he's probably sensing some guilt in and of himself. If If I could have parented this way differently, perhaps this could have been prevented. And it's in the midst of his suffering that God speaks to him more intimately than he ever has before or ever will again. Friends, there is a sweetness that comes in the suffering of God's people. We do not worship a God who has no idea what it's like to suffer. We don't have a God who is indifferent. We have a God who knows us and loves us. A God who took on flesh and entered into our world so that he might suffer for us on the cross for our sins. Jesus knows what it is suffer. God meets Aaron here to comfort him. He is loving. Friends, if you are suffering now or have suffered or will suffer, you know or you will know that God shows up there Of course, there there are times when when it feels as if darkness is your only friend and and the light will never come again. But God is faithful. And eventually, uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1 come to life for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. Through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. He is the God of comfort. And even though he has rightly judged Aaron's sons, he comforts Aaron amidst their loss. He also reminds Aaron of his holy calling. It would be easy for for Aaron to to think that somehow, because of these events, that he, he was unworthy to be God's high priest. After all, he'd failed. He feels like he failed as a father. And yet, as God speaks to him and reminds him of his calling, and his task, he, he is reminded once more that he is high priest not on the basis of his performance, after all, he's the guy that, that fashioned the golden calf, but on the basis of God's provision and God's promise that it's because of God Aaron is in the position that he is in. God has appointed him the high priest and God is gracious enough To keep him there. I think this is a good word for us, a good reminder to us that that we are not Christians or God's people because we are perfect, but because we have believed in our perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, We are not God's people because we are just really, really awesome. Now we are God's people because he has chosen to demonstrate his grace to us, to give his grace to us. We are not God's people because we are better than anyone else. We are God's people because of the work of Christ. This is really important to remember. Because we, like Aaron, have been set apart, called to demonstrate God's glory, to to live holy lives, to represent God's holiness to to one another and to the world. And it is only by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that we are able to fulfill that call given to us in 1 Peter 2. You are. Are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, our God is not only a God of of love and of comfort, but he is a God who has assigned work to us that we would proclaim his excellencies to all people of all nations. And he does not remove us from this task every time we sin and fail. We, we do not lose our status as God's beloved children when we feel like failures. Friend, when you feel as if you have failed, Listen to God's word. For in there you will hear the truth that if you have repented of your sin and are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are His, and He will never leave you or forsake you. And indeed, as Philippians tells us, He will bring the good work started in you to completion. God is reminding Aaron of these things now in the midst of his suffering. He comforts him and he reminds him of his calling. And and these things in verses 9 through 11 are mostly not new. Priests are going to uh, distinguish between the holy and the unholy, holy and the common, the unclean and the clean, and we'll, we'll talk about that next week in chapter 11. He's there to teach if you see there in verse 11, the Israelites, all of God's word, all the statutes given through Moses. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that they are to render legal decisions. So the work of priests is, is vast. You know They're also supposed to perform ritual sacrifices. But, but what stands out here in the instructions to Aaron is verse 9. You and your sons are not to drink wine or beer. When you enter the tent of meeting, or else you will die. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. I mean, this makes sense, right? You shouldn't drink and drive, and so you shouldn't drink and then uh, go before the Lord and God of the universe. It makes sense. You shouldn't do that while you're inebriated. No, no drunk priests. It's a good rule why here? Why now? And I think the context leads us to believe that part of what led to Nadab and Abihu's sin was drunkenness. This instruction comes now after they had disobeyed the Lord's command. And Furthermore, we, we see some more um, we have some more information about this particular scene in Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said, "Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever He wants into the holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die." because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And so when we do some, some math here, when we put some of the pieces together, what seems to have happened with Nadab and Abihu is that they took uh, on a fire pan or an, in a sensor, they took coals that they weren't supposed to have there and some incense that they weren't supposed to have, and then they went into the holy of holies. As so if you can kind of picture a square in your head, Remember? be the whole tabernacle. And if you step into that that first room of of the tabernacle of the tent, that's the, the holy place, sanctuary. And then there's this inner room behind the curtain, like a second square, and it's called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant is and the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where God most powerfully manifests his holy presence. It's where his presence is most localized. And so, these instructions in chapter 16 says, hey, your son's died. You can't go into the holy place whenever you want. You see, the, the, what, I, what I infer is that at least part of the sin of Nadab and Abihu is that they've filled up their censers their with, with strange fire, which nobody knows what that is, and, and they, they're, they've got the incense and they're going into the holy of holies, drunk. And They die. And the reason I think they're going to Holy Holies is there in 16.1, but also if you read the rest of chapter 16, part of the Day of Atonement ritual is for Aaron to take his fire or his censer and some coals and to take it with him as he goes into the Holy of Holies so that this smoke would fill up that place and obscure his vision of God so that he won't die. It's really, really incredible. But the point is rather simple. Priest needs to stay sober so he can rightly perform his duties so that he won't violate or profane God's holy name. The holiness of God's people and especially of his priests is paramount. It's non-negotiable. The emphasis on a high regard for God's holiness is also seen in his prohibition on Aaron and Aaron's other sons. He tells them that they can't participate in customary mourning rituals. You see that in in verses 6 and 7? Right after uh, the sons of Aaron's uncle, which I think makes them cousins, but I'm not sure, uh, Moses says, get their bodies out of here rather quickly. And then uh, they take their bodies outside the camp. And then he turns to Aaron and his sons and he says, do not let your hair hang loose or tear your clothing. Or you will die. And the Lord will become angry, not only with them, but with the whole community of believers. He says, the rest of Israel can weep and mourn, but you you may not. You go, well, well, why, why not? And the first reason, I think the big reason is they are there to guard God's holiness. And so if they if they immediately Um, rip their priestly garments and allow their hair to go unkempt and perform normal, customary morning rituals, they're sending a message. They're teaching. And the message is, we think God might have got this wrong or that his judgment was was too harsh. God tells them, no, no, no. You can't do some of these outward actions. Otherwise, my holiness will be profaned. That's part of what the body's being moved is all about. To touch a, a dead body would make you unclean. And the high priests have been set apart as specially, ritually holy. They're not allowed to handle the, de- the dead bodies. And typically when you're, you're mourning, you would handle the body and be polluted. They, they can't do that. They Can't rip their garments. They can't tear their hair. Now, they, they could be sad. But I, I certainly think that Aaron is sad. They could even cry tears as they go about performing their rituals. But they may not do the customary ripping of the garments. They need to let everyone know that they are with God on this. That they are on God's side. That they value God's holiness above everything else. I mean, that's a big message. Aaron is saying, Nothing, not even the death of a precious child, is more important to me than rightly honoring God, than a right regard for his holiness. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 8. Lord, another of his disciples said, First, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Do we value, do you value and regard God and his holiness above all else? Aaron did. He, he, he obeyed this command to not sully God's reputation by publicly mourning. He, he wanted everybody to know, God wanted everyone to know, that he was right in judging Nadab in a bayou. Second reason they aren't allowed to mourn is because to, to mourn over this sin and to, to rend the holy garments and to profane God's holiness, to disrespect God and to repeat the sin of Nadab and Abihu And if they would do that, the Lord would become angry, not only with them, but with the whole community. Sin spreads. It doesn't stay where it starts. It's, it's cancer in the lymph nodes. It goes throughout the whole body, damaging everything. And Moses is calling the priests, God is, is calling Aaron and the other priests to put a stop to sin to obey God and to not allow sin to persist in them or in the community. And quite obviously, we see the importance of godly leadership here. The sin of these leaders will endanger the whole community. Once more, we are reminded of words in the New Testament, this time in the book of James. Not many should presume to become teachers my brothers because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment friends god god's holy character is to be represented in his whole people and especially his priests especially leaders this side of the cross we would say especially elders or pastors There is a responsibility of the whole church and of pastors and elders specifically to guard God's holiness insofar as we can. And what that looks like is obeying the words of 1 Timothy, of keeping a close watch on your life and doctrine. So so pastors must fight constantly against sin and guard themselves from slipping into it. Moreover, good pastors will help guard their congregation against sin by teaching God's word faithfully, by lovingly rebuking sin. They'll teach the members of the congregation to lovingly rebuke sin in one another's lives. I mean, this is, this is just rudimentary church discipline. That's why churches practice church discipline is to protect God's holy reputation. What's happening in those situations is is you have somebody who is saying, I am choosing to sin and not repent rather than obeying God and regarding his holiness. What the church does is come along and says, this is not the behavior of a Christian. Christians repent Christians value God's holiness above all else. And we recognize that to allow sin to persist in, in this community is to invite disease in. Pastors who do not lead their people to practice church discipline and to pursue holiness are spineless They endanger the whole community and defame God. Christians who do not highly regard God's holiness above their own popularity profane the name of God. Churches that welcome sin, not sin that's repented of, sinners are welcomed here, we're all sinners, we all come through the blood of Christ but welcome somebody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to live my life however the hell I want. I'm not going to actually follow Jesus. I'm just going to claim him. If we stand around and say, that's wonderful of you. This is what a Christian looks like to the world. It's the the person who uh, continually cheats on his wife and doesn't care. It's the person who robs banks every day and eh, whatever. we We don't say no You're you're not a Christian. This is not what Jesus looks like. That is not a life that exemplifies holiness. We are lying to the world about who God is. And we are disregarding his holiness in favor of our own preferences. God's holiness is a big deal. There are no small sins. And God's people are called to represent and reflect his holy character, especially pastors, especially church leaders. We all together follow Jesus. Again, we're not not perfect. That's not what we're saying here. This is not self-righteousness. We are a group of repenting sinners trusting in Jesus Christ so that when I sin and you come to me and say, Justin, you were wrong here. You've, you, this is where you have violated God's words. You need to repent. that I look at you and I say, "Thank you so much for pointing out that sin in my life. I love God above all else. Let me repent of that. What do I need to do?" And then I, I thank you for it, and I, I come in and correct it and back in the fold, and then down the line, you know maybe I, I find some sin in someone else, and I say, "Hey, I, I noticed that, that you have been habitually drunk. This is, not, this is not the way of a Christian. And then you, you repent and you take the steps to, to reconcile with those you've harmed. And this is, this is what life together as Christians is. Repenting of our sin and following Jesus. We've been declared holy and righteous in Christ. And now this side of that declaration, in union with Christ, by the power of the Spirit, well, we try to live that out. We try to become and practice what we've been declared in Christ, which is holy. We try to rightly represent God. God calls his people in the Old Testament and in the New to be holy because I am holy. Holiness is really, really important. And where sin is allowed to exist instead of holiness, the whole community is endangered. Aaron does not mourn his son in the fashion that his culture would require so that he might honor God. I mean, do you regard God's holiness like that? Do we? This is a true, I mean, Aaron dies to himself to obey God here. And this is what Christ calls us to do. Die to ourselves and follow him. Do we regard God like this? This chapter begins very negatively and actually finishes very positively. As Aaron, there's this this disobedience, but the whole thing doesn't fall apart. Aaron and his other sons continue to perform the sacrifices in a way that's appropriate. God is being honored. People are able to worship. There's this odd exchange in the latter half of the chapter where Moses is making sure they're following the procedures to the letter so that they don't have another you know, workplace accident. And he's concerned that, that Aaron and the others haven't eaten the purification sacrifice. And so he, he's like, Aaron, what are you doing? You're supposed to eat this whole thing. Are you crazy? You're going to get us all killed. And Aaron says, you see it there, it's verse 19, since these things have happened to me, if I'd eaten the sin offering today, would it have been acceptable in the Lord's sight? I don't know why he doesn't eat the offering. Perhaps the sadness of his sons. Perhaps he's um, thinking that he is somehow sharing in their guilt. Either way, he doesn't eat. It's born out of a fear of the Lord, a reverence for God. And this answer is acceptable to both Moses and, by extension, the Lord really is a positive end of the chapter. That's all the fallout of the chapter. Now let's take our attention for our last few minutes together and look at the the fireworks of this chapter. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then the fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, and I will display my glory before all the people. And Aaron remained silent. Aaron's silence there is is not accidental. He's agreeing with God's judgment. This contrast between the beginning of this chapter and what we saw in the previous chapter is quite striking. It it is a strange strange juxtaposition. You have from chapters eight, in chapters eight and nine over and over again that the people did as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded. It's it's like a little song or a bass line underneath of the chapters. And when we, I mean, we see uh, sacrifice the people's offering and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. That's verse seven of chapter nine. They did as the Lord commanded, verse ten of chapter nine. As the Lord commanded, verse twenty one of chapter nine. We have fire falling from the Lord's presence and and it's the fire of his favor consuming the sacrifice and the people shout out with joy and they bow down in worship and things are really great. And then we read this. Nadab and Abihu present strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them to do. We cannot worship God however we want. We must worship Him according to His Word. God is not pleased by our efforts to turn our sins into expressions of worship. Nadab and Abiyu attempt to worship God in their own way, and God consumes them. They are burned alive, and his judgment is right and just. No one should feel bad for Nadab and Abihu. And this is not this is not just a really bad first day at work for them. Okay, this is I mean this is showing up for your first day of work at the Louvre in France and you are drunk, and you've got a can of paint, and you're running at the Mona Lisa, okay? This is outrageous. You don't just burst into a king's throne room, right? They're trying to go into the Holy of Holies of Lord God Almighty. You don't even do that with regular kings. You guys know the book of Esther, right? Uh, the the um, Haman has hatched this evil plot. He wants to kill all the Jews. He's gotten the king to go along with it. And Mordecai's like, Esther, you need to go before the king and get this stuff sorted out. And she's so afraid to go into the king's throne room to approach the king unsummoned that she fasts for three days, has her bridesmaids fast, has Mordecai fast, and says those famous words, if I perish, I perish. She's concerned about violating the king's status because she's going to violate protocol. And here are Nadab and Abihu just gonna just gonna do worship God how they want, roll right into the Holy of Holies. No. It received all this instruction about what they're to do and precisely how they're going supposed to do it, and, and they they just go in like, mavericks. This is how we think it would be better to worship you, God. They're killed for this sin. I mean, it just, it's just is blatant sin. Now, if we're sitting back and some of us are going, "Yeah, but isn't isn't this just a little harsh, God?" I think, after all, it's just it's just one mistake. It's their first day of work. I'm a little harsh. I think if we say that, we reveal our own small thoughts of God and our own small thoughts. Of sin, so many of us have drunk the cultural kool-aid and begun to think of God as if he were, were a butler you know they're there to get things for us when we want them. Or a therapist, help us feel better about ourselves. Maybe, maybe even a good luck charm help you get rich or get a parking spot at the grocery store Guy that's God that's you know. Just like us, but a little bit nicer. Helpful. So passages like this disconcert us, make us uncomfortable. It's because the spirit of the age has so papered over God's holy wrath and quieted down the consciences, consciences of us all, we don't, don't sense that God is right. I mean we, we've so sentimentalized the love of God that now we feel like He approves of sin. I mean these are crude caricatures. And God is holy. He's categorically different than us. The difference between us and God is not one of degree, but of kind. And God, unlike us, is always right. When we respond to passages like this and, oh, it's a little harsh, we have the wrong viewpoint. We should not be sympathizing with Nadab and Abihu here. We should be on God's side. We should understand this from God's perspective. He's, He's holy. He judges sin. And he does so rightly each And every time. We cannot approach God however we want. This is proven. Nadab and Abihu tried to do just that. I'm thankful that we have a plurality of elders here because it means I don't always get my way. Which, you know, it's part of it. That's good. It's good for us. It's good for me. But every once in a while, it usually doesn't happen a ton, but every once in a while we'll have conversations where we all aren't agreed. So Mike and David are getting a little nervous now. They're like, what is he going to talk about here? Uh, But one was a long time ago, and I I didn't even really get out of the the horse gate, out of the gate on this one. But I brought up an old tradition that churches used to do long ago. And, And what it was is churches used to always paint their doors red. And I was like, guys, this would be great. It's great symbolism. Let's paint our doors red. And they're like, eh, eh. But the symbolism underneath it, why churches used to do this, is because it was a reminder that we only come together and we only come before God through the blood of Christ. We don't come any other way. We don't get to come through Muhammad, We don't get to come to God through our good works. We we don't get to go before the Lord any other way except through the blood of Christ, the way that he has ordained. What a great reminder. And that's that's the point here. We cannot just come to God any way we want. He has judged sin and he will judge sin. He's going to, to eliminate all evil. That includes you and me because he's good. And he has made one way for us to escape this judgment. It's through faith in Christ Jesus who died for you and for me. That's the only way. And it's not because he he just swept sin under the rug. It's because he poured out his wrath on Christ. The punishment that was due you, Christian, was poured out on Jesus. Friends, all of us have a decision to make. We will either approach God like Nadab and Abiyu, or we will come to him through Christ. We will either know the fire of God's favor. We will either shout for joy and bow down and worship. Or we will know the fire of His wrath. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holy. And we must treat Him as holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though we don't deserve to know you, you have called us to yourself. We thank you that Christ died so that we might be forgiven of our sins. We thank you that he rose from the dead so that by faith in him, we can know that we too shall be free from death that we too shall share in a resurrection like his. This is good news. God, we thank you that you are holy, that you will deal with sin, that you will make all things new. We thank you that you are good. We pray that you would make us holy as you are holy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.